it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, July 25th, 2022. A new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in, each and every one of you. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday or on demand around the clock for free on our podcast. Everything that you need about this program is at GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, including the free podcast. Another option there is FoxNewsPodcast.com or really wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Baer, part of that panel. Molly Hemingway's on the panel, Juan Williams as well. Brett Baer anchoring here in Washington, D.C. Right around 645 Eastern, I think we'll be on. So you can set your DVRs or tune in to Fox News Channel. That's part of my duties as a Fox News contributor here. I'm also political editor at townhall.com. Our lineup is as follows on this Monday. Morgan Ortegas former State Department spokeswoman. She's going to be here coming up later this hour on a few foreign policy issues that are, I think, very important. A revelation about China and Chinese espionage that we will get Morgan's take on coming up here in just a few minutes. Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox, he will be here at the top of next hour. Also in our middle hour, Dr. Mark Siegel on monkeypox, on covid And also a big scandal that seems to be building in the scientific community around Alzheimer's research that may be fraudulent. And if Alzheimer's is a disease that affects anyone that you know or your family, this is really a shocking story that is just starting to get attention. We will get Dr. Siegel to weigh in on it later on in the program. And then in our final hour, the happy hour, Howie Kurtz is going to be here about the media, their coverage of the president's COVID diagnosis, their overall turning on Joe Biden to a certain extent. What's that all about? Late night comics joining the pile on. What does Howie think about any and all of that? Plus a few more topics. We will cover that with the host of Media Buzz in our third and final hour. As we begin today's show, I just want to mention that This is going to be a very significant week in terms of the U.S. economy and some data that we're getting on inflation, on interest rates, and on the possibility of recession. On Thursday, so July 28th, this Thursday, the Fed is going to put out – or excuse me, not the Fed. The U.S. government is going to put out their projection, their estimate for the second quarter – on GDP, gross domestic product, overall just economic growth or lack thereof. We know that in the first quarter of this year, the economy contracted. And in fact, in June, that number got worse than it was initially thought to be. 
in Q1 of this year, the U.S. economy shrank at an annualized pace of 1.6% in that first quarter, which was a deeper contraction than the initial estimate had indicated. 1.5% is what they were expecting, which was still a bit of a shock to the system for a lot of people. A lot of the assumption was coming out of COVID, it would just be like a rocket ship in this economy, just bouncing back from this very unusual period of time where the economy got shut down, and then you got in Q1 economic shrinkage at 1.6%, worse than expected. And now the question is, what is the second quarter number going to be when it is released this Thursday? And there are a number of experts who now believe that it will be a negative number again, a number in the red. Growth worse than zero, meaning a second consecutive quarter of economic contraction, which is and has been for my entire life. When people talk about what a recession is, the rule of thumb, the shorthand has always been at least back-to-back, at least two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. So we got that in Q1. We'll find out on Thursday if we've got it in Q2. And maybe we won't. Maybe there'll be a very modest growth number. I don't know. That's possible. But it certainly seems as though the White House is resigning itself to bad news on Thursday. Because they are already starting to pre-spin Some of these numbers, I don't know if they've seen them or they just have a hunch or they're seeing, for example, the Atlanta Fed, which has a tracker on this. And the Atlanta Fed believes that will be, again, negative 1.6 percent, identical to quarter one. Maybe they're just uh, sort of in agreement with the growing conventional wisdom. I don't know. But we saw just recently them coming out and pre-spinning inflation numbers, the terrible number that we got in what, mid-July? North of 9% overall in inflation. And they were, oh, it's old. That number's outdated already. And it doesn't include the gas prices that are coming down a little bit and, and all of that, the whole song and dance. I'm getting that same energy from the White House yesterday and today as they send out some of their surrogates to, it feels like, prepare the battlefield for something that's going to be ugly on Thursday. And it would be one thing if they were saying, look, we think that fears about a second consecutive month of negative or of quarter rather of negative growth is uh, we think those fears are overblown. We think that is unlikely or less likely than some people believe. We're still optimistic, blah, blah, blah. They could be saying that, but at least right now they're not. What they're doing is trying to redefine what counts as a recession, which I find quite telling, and also pretty brazen. As I said, as long as I can remember, as far back as I can recall, the basic heuristic, the basic quick rule of thumb was back-to-back quarters, negative growth, that's a recession. And now Team Biden is trying to tell us, let's reimagine the definition of recession. Even if it does come in, as that second consecutive quarter of negative growth, that doesn't necessarily make it a recession. So here's the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, appearing on Meet the Press yesterday, 
sort of setting the groundwork to make this argument that we've heard now echoed by others in Cut 12. This was Yellen. And many economists uh, expect second quarter GDP to be negative. First quarter GDP was negative. So we could see that happen, and that will be closely watched. But I do want to emphasize what a recession really means is a broad-based contraction in the economy. And even if that number is negative, we are not in a recession now. And um, I, I would you know, one that we should be um, not not characterizing that as a recession. We should not be characterizing that as a recession, even though that is the thing that has been used. That is the metric that has been used to characterize recessions just basically forever. So I saw Scott Rusterholtz, who's an economist, he explained some of the spin here. He said, here's some perspective. Two negative quarters of GDP growth don't automatically force NBER to classify it as a recession. However, there's a reason it's a rule of thumb. Since World War II, we've had 11 instances of two-plus quarters of contraction. Every one was deemed a recession with the one exception of 1947, shortly after the war. That's the context. There's a reason why this is generally used as the definition of recession, because this is what recessions are. The White House has now on their official website, whitehouse.gov, they are putting out there basically the talking point that you just heard from Yellen. What is a recession, they ask? While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Our colleague Jackie Heinrich here at Fox News tweeting that out, saying they're bracing for impact. They're not going to use the R word because they kind of want to redefine it. They are just, again, reinventing that definition, and you kind of almost can see the pattern happening already, where they deny recession was going to be a problem and really downplayed that threat, just like they did with with, uh, inflation for a long time, and we know how that turned out. Then recession potentially arrives, as it might on Thursday with this news. If that were to happen, they're going to say, well, it's not really a recession. Just because this definition has been commonly used for many decades doesn't mean that it's real. And I wonder if in the following quarter or in 2023 or in 2024, if there's an even more obvious and difficult recession, then where do they go? They would have to retreat further from the redefinition of the phenomenon to what? Saying that it's a transitory recession? I can imagine that, just like they did on inflation. You've got Brian Dees, who's one of the big economic advisors to Biden that they put out there on TV all the time. He often is given the unenviable task of the pre-spin, and he is following in the footsteps of what we've read at WhiteHouse.gov and what we heard from the Treasury Secretary. Here he was on CNN in Cut 16. So I'm saying two quarters of negative growth in a row, that's a recession. Right. And certainly in terms of the technical definition, it's not a recession. The technical definition considers a much broader spectrum uh, of data points. 
But in practical terms, what matters to the American people is whether they have a little economic breathing room, they have more job opportunities, their wages are going up. That has been Joe Biden's focus since coming into office. He has had a view of the economy that we need to look to build from the bottom up and middle out. And what that means is that typical working class people in this country have had trouble affording things for years. He is focused on building a strong, durable economic recovery here. We have real global challenges here in the short term. We've got to navigate our way through them, but we have to do so without giving up all our economic gains. That's going to be our focus, and I think that we need to train that focus on that rather than on sort of technical debates about backward-looking data. <laughs> there it is again, backward-looking data. All the freshest data is backward-looking. Well, yeah, it's because that's the most recent stuff that we have to evaluate. Oh, let's not focus so much on technical definitions and what the public perceives to be the correct definition of a term. Let's focus on bottom-up, middle-out economics and building a stronger, more durable economy or whatever. Just a blizzard of blathering talking points. That's the president's focus. Oh, well, if that's his focus, how's it going? How's the focus gone, Brian? Not terribly well. Most Americans living paycheck to paycheck feel like prospects for a rebounding economy are poor. Most believe that we are already in a recession. That might become quasi-official on Thursday, although they're going to deny that definition and try to reinvent it, reimagine it. One of their favorite words, reimagine, like they want to reimagine policing. Remember that? Reimagine prisons. Ultimately, I think they can play games with rhetoric and language as much as they want, and they do it all the time. I feel like a lot of the progressive left, like all they do these days is try to change the meaning of words and then have a big angry debate about it. They can do that. It's just not going to work with the American people because the American people are experiencing what they're experiencing and they're seeing it in their lives which is why all of their BS about inflation also hasn't worked because it just is what it is. Reality is what it is. And at some point, if this continues and if we get hit by a recession and if that recession deepens, it doesn't matter what the Democrats want to call it or what words they choose to use. Reality is just going to be there. Searing, undeniable, unspinnable. I want to leave you in this segment with Larry Summers, former Obama Treasury Secretary. He was on CNN. He actually has credibility on these issues. He was right on inflation. They were wrong. Here he is, his latest assessment on recession in Cut 28. I think there's a very high likelihood of recession when we've been in this kind of situation before recession has essentially always followed when inflation has been high and unemployment uh, has been low. Soft landings represent a kind of triumph of hope over uh, experience. I think we're very unlikely uh, to see one. So a soft landing would be an ingenious Fed orchestrated and engineered easier, sort of softer, less painful recession out of really brutal inflation. And Larry Summers thinks that is wish casting at this point. Very unlikely to happen and a recession almost inevitable without a soft landing. So who are you going to believe? Larry Summers 
with credibility on inflation and your own lying eyes or Janet Yellen and Brian Dees in the Biden brain trust. That's your call to make. I know who I'm more inclined to trust. And we'll see if their spin really ratchets up into hyperdrive on Thursday when we get some of this data. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started a new week on the program. Thank you for listening. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I mentioned there are a number of big data points dropping this week. Let me get more specific. Tomorrow, we will get the consumer confidence numbers. And if the polling is indicative of how consumers are feeling, those will probably be pretty bad. That's tomorrow, consumer confidence. Wednesday, the Federal Reserve is meeting on interest rates. And that, of course, is very much informed by inflation and the desire to curb inflation. And the more they clamp down to beat inflation, the harder the landing, so to speak, would be on a recession. Speaking of which, as I mentioned, on Thursday comes GDP, Q2. And if that's in the negative again, that is, by most people's definition, a recession. Which is why the White House is saying, let's not quibble about technical definitions. And technically, that's not really the definition. and We wouldn't call it that. Janet Yellen said she would be very surprised if that were declared a recession just based on that. And it's true. Look, job growth remains strong. There are some positive numbers out there and indicators out there. But overall, a lot of the arrows are pointed in the wrong direction. So GDP Q2 comes Thursday. Hence, I think a lot of this preemptive damage control. Then on Friday, we will get the personal consumption expenditure index. So a pretty significant week ahead, and we will have experts here on the show talking about it. And we already know, they've previewed it for us, what some folks at the White House would say in response to worrisome numbers and sort of gloom and doom. They'll say, no, that's all backward-looking. It's backward-looking data, transitory. I mean, we've, we've heard it all before. 
I saw Seth Mandel, a conservative writer, very funny tweet today. It's not a recession unless it's from the recession region of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling misery. Which is pretty good on the redefining of recession. A little champagne reference. Champagne is going to be less and less affordable, it seems, for a lot of people. It isn't already. Guy Benson Show continues next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show, where our website is and remains GuyBensonShow.com, and the podcast is and remains totally free on demand every day. I want to read to you a little bit from this CNN story, a few passages, then bring in our guests to react. Here's the headline. FBI investigation determined Chinese-made Huawei equipment could disrupt U.S. nuclear arsenal communications. And the story begins like this. On paper, it looked like a fantastic deal. In 2017, the Chinese government was offering to spend $100 million to build an ornate Chinese garden at the National Arboretum in Washington, D.C., complete with temples, pavilions, and a 70-foot white pagoda. The project thrilled local officials who hoped it would attract thousands of tourists every year. But when U.S. counterintelligence officials began digging into the details, they found numerous red flags. The pagoda, they noted, would have been strategically placed on one of the highest points in Washington, D.C., just two miles from the U.S. Capitol, a perfect spot for signals intelligence collection, according to multiple sources. Also alarming was that Chinese officials wanted to build the pagoda with materials shipped to the U.S. in diplomatic pouches, which U.S. customs officials are barred from examining. Federal officials quietly killed the project before construction was underway. The canceled garden is part of a frenzy of counterintelligence activity by the FBI and other federal agencies focused on what career U.S. security officials say has been a dramatic escalation of Chinese espionage on U.S. soil over the past decade. Since at least 2017, federal officials have been investigating Chinese land purchases near critical infrastructure. They shut down a high-profile regional consulate believed by the U.S. government to be a hotbed of Chinese spies and stonewalled what they saw as clear efforts to plant listening devices near sensitive military and government facilities. Guys, this is really serious. Like China is not some potential threat that might be a problem down the line. They want to supplant us as global superpower right now, and they are spying like crazy on us or trying to, to hasten that outcome. The story goes on. Among the most alarming things the FBI uncovered pertains to Chinese-made Huawei equipment. This is wireless technology atop cell towers near U.S. military bases in the rural Midwest. According to multiple sources familiar with the matter, the FBI determined the equipment was capable of capturing and disrupting 
highly restricted Defense Department communications, including those used by U.S. Strategic Command, which oversees the country's nuclear weapons. The Chinese government strongly denies any efforts to spy on the U.S. Let me pause to just point and laugh at that. No one believes that. No one. We shouldn't. It's obvious nonsense, but they're at least going through the motions of denying it. And Huawei, in a statement to CNN, also denied that its equipment is capable of operating in any communication spectrum allocated to the Defense Department. Okay. Oh, well, I guess we'll just take their word for it. Multiple sources familiar with the investigation tell CNN there's no question the Huawei equipment, and by the way, Huawei is indistinguishable from the Chinese government. It is the CCP. And these sources say the equipment does have the ability to intercept not only commercial cell traffic, but also the highly restricted airwaves used by the military and could disrupt critical U.S. strategic command communications, giving the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, a potential window into America's nuclear arsenal. Quote, this gets into some of the most sensitive things we do said one former FBI official with knowledge of the investigation, it would impact our ability for essentially command and control of the nuclear triad. That goes into the BFD category, says this source. This story is maybe not shocking, but it is extremely important. And the American people need to be aware of it, and American policymakers really need to think long and hard about what China is up to, what they're trying to do, how stupid they think we are with these rote denials. And joining me now to discuss this and some other issues as well is Morgan Ortegas, former spokesperson for the U.S. State Department under Secretary Pompeo and President Trump. Morgan, it is so good to have you back here. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you, Guy. And uh, you obviously you and your listeners couldn't see my face Um but I was nodding vigorously. And uh, and also, I, I got to tell you guys, when I see all of this news, I think to myself, did no one listen to us for the last two years of the Trump administration? You know, everything that they're talking about now, whether it's the origins of COVID, whether it's the threat of Huawei or TikTok, you know, I'm kind of pulling my ha- hair out over here saying we were telling you all of this throughout 2020. But because we worked for Trump, you didn't want to listen. I think that's actually right. I mean, you guys, Secretary Pompeo, you as his spokesperson, you guys were talking about the CCP, Huawei, TikTok, all of it. I know this because you guys talked about it with me specifically on this show. You were telling anyone who would listen about these threats and the lab leak theory, all of that that you just referenced. I think it got some purchase in certain areas from some people. But overall, the news media just kind of was like, well, these are Trump people. And so uh, we don't really want to listen to them. We don't believe them. We don't trust them. You guys were maybe not giving away as much information about these investigations, depending on what you guys could or could not say publicly. But you were very much sounding the alarm about the CCP. And I think some of that coverage disparity was purely because of politics, to your point. One way or another, though, people need to know this. And if it if it forces them to pay attention because CNN reports it, I'd rather them know it and care than not know it and not care. Right. Because to me, this is such a big threat, and it's brazen. I mean, what the Chinese are trying to do here is very, very brazen. 
No, thank you. I, I, I mean, I appreciate it. It's. I will say it's been going on for a long time. I can tell you, I started working in foreign policy. Um, let's see, my first appointment was in the Bush administration. Um, by the time I got my security clearance, I got in there early to 2007, and and we just were not from 2000. Well, I can say this, you know, since, since I've been paying attention and watching foreign policy since the early 2000s, uh, up until 2015, we were just not talking about um, China at all, really to any great extent. And, and when we were talking about China, it was it was an accommodation perspective. Uh, we, and I mean this as a bipartisan foreign policy consensus, whatever that is, but apparently I'm a part of it in Washington, uh, we weren't paying attention as we were worried about Iraq and Afghanistan. But listen, for good reason, right? We were, we were trying to deal with this threat of terrorism. But anytime we were um, Republicans or Democrats in the end of the Bush administration going to the Obama administration, we talked about pivoting to Asia, but we talked about it in accommodating terms. We talked about it uh, as giving you know China uh, ascension to the WTO, uh, how we continue to open up and do business with them. And the working theory, um, as my former boss, Mike Pompeo, has discussed with you many times over the past 40 years, was uh, the more we do business with them, the richer they become, the more they're going to open up because that is uh, that is the philosophy of, of you know of how reform happens. P- people make more money, they get more comfortable, they want more freedom. Well, Xi Jinping turned that on its head, and quite frankly, Donald Trump turned it on its head because uh, when he started talking and raising the alarm about what China was doing, you did see people like Gordon Chang and others, which had warned for many years, but Trump had a very loud bullhorn, uh, which really moved both sides of the aisle in Washington um, on China. Remember, I wrote a long piece, um, which was out just a few weeks ago. If you Google my name, Biden China, you can bring it up, um, where I detailed extensively how Hunter Biden was doing business um, with the China, with entities from the Chinese Communist Party. Remember, there is no such thing as private sector in China. Uh, they are all essentially state-owned enterprises and beholden to yep. the government. But more importantly, what people don't remember, Guy, is Biden, uh, current President Biden, was in charge of China policy during the Obama administration. Obama put him in charge of it. It was his portfolio, and all he did uh, was accommodate them, wine and dine them. And we saw them militarily take over uh, the—militarize the South China Sea. We saw them steal our IP. We saw them steal the security clearance info of millions of Americans, including myself. And— and that's what we saw under Biden's watch as vice president when he led this portfolio. And now he continues that into his presidency. And I would just note again, because we talk about wokeness a lot on this show, and sometimes people might roll their eyes and say, well, look, that's just sort of excess nonsense from you know college students or whatever. I think it's pretty obvious it's gone way beyond that. It's become endemic in our society. It is a real toxin, I would say, in our ability to talk to one another and to function as a society. And the Chinese government and their friends and their allies and their operatives are actually actively trying to seek opportunities to capitalize on this sort of culture of wokeness to make these kinds of conversations that we're having verboten, where they want to frame – any opposition to the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party and their infiltration of U.S. institutions, their infiltration on U.S. campuses, for example, they want to frame that or dismiss it as racism. And they want to go to the well of identity politics, turn us against each other and say, oh, no, you can't talk about that because that's sinophobia, that's, you know, racism, stop Asian hate. 
And I mean, it's such, I think, a, a sort of brutish and blunt object that they're trying to use. They're trying to use our own stupidity against us or our own, you know, the, the new mores that certain people in this country are trying to foist upon, you know, all of society to say, basically, we're going to infiltrate your institutions at very high levels. And we're going to try to use this craziness on the left and identity politics to prevent you guys from even talking about it in a serious way, let alone doing anything about it. I think that is extremely dangerous. And my hope, Morgan, is that there will be a bipartisan recognition of the threat here and that maybe for once we can put aside the pettiness of Washington, D.C., and actually be very serious about this threat. And look, I I think the fact that Speaker Pelosi is committed to going to Taiwan and isn't backing down, that's a good sign on that front. And I would commend her if she moves forward with that plan, which it looks like she will. This is just way too important for the inane ridiculousness that characterizes so much of our politics these days. Uh, yes. I, you know, the, if, if you have time, and let me, allow me for a second. I know I get excited on radio because there's no TV producer guy in our ear when you and I are on TV <laughs> together yelling at the rap. So I will say quickly on the Taiwan thing, um, and, and there's a lot of uh, flurry amongst uh, nerds like myself and the Republican foreign policy world on this, like, where do we stand on this? Let me say, first of all, that I think that is, it is a I don't have a problem with her going. It is a big error in how the administration has handled this in two ways. One, you never talk about Fight Club. Right. Like you, she, we should just wake up, look at the television one day. It's sort of like whenever the president, you remember this in years past when we still the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Remember how the president would just like show up in Iraq or Afghanistan on Christmas yeah, for or Thanksgiving or yeah. That's how her trip should have been conducted. It never should have been talked about in advance. It is way, way, way too sensitive and precarious of a situation. So we sent administration officials to Taiwan during the Trump years. um, And and when we did that, uh, we cut off uh, all press uh, before and even during the trip, Uh, much to the chagrin of some of my senior officials who wanted to do media there. And I said, absolutely not. Just being there is the statement that we need to make. So um, it's very unfortunate that this got leaked earlier this year. It's really much. It's really much more dangerous, in my estimate. Uh, uh, you know, this Biden and his loose lips um, are really harming national security, and that's not something that I say lightly, guy. You know me; I'm not hyperbolic. Um, the fact that Biden admitted that there are internal deliberations inside the government that the military doesn't want. Uh, Pelosi to go. Well, that's a big problem to discuss publicly. Uh, We should never be discussing our internal security deliberations because now, Guy, we have a problem that if if she doesn't go, it looks like we back down. If she does go, the Chinese are going to feel like, well, now they're out on a limb, like we back them into a corner by talking about it publicly. So the best thing would have been for her to show up for there have been no press. All of a sudden we realize, oh, she's there. She does her thing, and, and then she leaves. We make Which is what she did, by the way, in Ukraine. The that's what she did in Ukraine, and I thought Absolutely. that that was good. She should have done the same thing here. That That's a very good point. And Biden has made this now into a huge fiasco, I think. You know, and this, this is why, you know, I think he is a dangerous president and why we shouldn't just laugh off or shrug off uh, his public gaffes. You know, I don't know if his public gaffes are because he's been making gaffes for the 40 years he's been in public life, or if it's from something else. Whatever it's from, it's it's dangerous, because now you have sort of, you've raised the ante on this, that she's going, you know, both sides feel like they can't back down. 
That's not the kind of position that we need to be in over Taiwan. Biden's also screwed up by saying three or four times, we've had this strategic ambiguity policy, which means that we give tons of uh, military aid and equipment uh, to Taiwan. They purchase it, to be fair. And we never really say whether we will fight to defend them or not. It's purposely um, ambiguous, right? That's the policy. Now, Biden is the president of the United States. He has every right to change that policy. But instead, he commits verbal diarrhea uh, and, and sort of changes the policy. Uh, and then they says, walk oh, it back, right? It's back. happened like three times. He'll back. say something, then they walk it back. Morgan, we only have like less than a minute left. Very quickly, your assessment of the Saudi Arabia trip. Diplomacy at the very highest level. What did you make of that? I mean, my expectations were incredibly low because um, he squandered the opportunity that he had in the Middle East for the past 17 months. Um, and then, you know, really, I think this is the White House communications team really screwed up guy. I mean, they should have said at the very beginning to the press, stop obsessing over shaking his hand. We're going to his country. We're going to shake his head. Instead, they came up with this, uh, oh, well, he's not going to shake anyone's hands from COVID until he started kissing everyone in Israel. And so then they just blew it up into this huge thing. And then, you know, it was like he brought up Khashoggi, then the Saudis said no, he didn't. And so it's uh, it's a mess. You know, they painted the whole relationship with Saudi Arabia to be about oil. Um, They fight, you know, they are partners with us against terrorism. Have they screwed up? Was the murder awful? Yes. Should we change our entire foreign policy over uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? No. Yeah, and I think the expectations management was deficient. Let's put it that way. Uh, Some pretty tough assessments here from Morgan Ortegas, but I think they're fair. And I think the point about Pelosi was a really good one. Morgan, we're up on a break. We always enjoy our opportunities to chat. Let's do it again soon. Morgan Ortegas, former spokesperson at the U.S. State Department under Secretary Pompeo and President Trump. Morgan, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. Great to be with you. We will be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The border is secure. The border, uh, we are working to make the border more secure. That has been a historic challenge. The border is secure said DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas just last week. It is a lie. I don't know what else to call it. It's a lie. As we're back on the Guy Benson show and to just really highlight how big and brazen of a lie it is. Shameless. We have the latest numbers relayed to us by our colleague Bill Malugin. Per DHS sources, there have been over 500,000 known Godaways at the border since October 1st. Half a million, more than half a million since October 1st, far eclipsing nearly 400,000 Godaways last, fis- last fiscal year. So about 900,000 total Godaways since the beginning of last year, and we're a few months away from a million. These are just known Godaways. The border is not secure. It's insulting to say so. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. Thank you for listening. Three to six Eastern every weekday and around the clock for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. So check all of that out if you would like. 
As we begin our middle hour, let's bring you a Fox News alert. As the Dow closes up 90 points, ending the day at 31,990. We'll be talking about a number of our big topics here from the radio show tonight on Special Report. I'm on the panel, Fox News Channel, toward the end of the 6 p.m. hour. Hope to see you there with Brett and company. With us now is the man who helmed that show for many years, Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Britt, as always, great to have you. Glad to be here, Guy. I would like to get your take on the redefinition of recession that we're starting to hear from the White House. The Treasury Secretary, a top economic advisor, WhiteHouse.gov, they're all saying, well, if we get a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, that would not technically be the definition of a recession, so we probably shouldn't call it that. Uh, What do you make of that, Brett? For long as I can remember, Guy, going back many decades, the standard definition of a recession has been consecutive quarters of negative growth. So we've had one such quarter. We may have another. Um, The White House doesn't like that definition apparently now and decides that it wants to use some other definition. Well, I scattered around a little today, Guy, to see what other definitions might be available. Well, here's one from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, a period of reduced economic activity. I can't believe they would like that one better. But, you know, when you get down to it, when you're when you're in a recession politically, it's you don't like the word. But what really matters is what people are feeling and experiencing in their own lives. And people are having a hard time and it's more inflation than the possibility of recession. But both are in the cards and it's not good and there's no way to spin your way out of it. Yeah, and once you try to get rid of the inflation, which is crushing people, that is what so often leads to recession. And we've played the clips from Larry Summers and others saying when you have the exact current set of issues and circumstances that we're all living through right now with inflation and low unemployment, when that is you know in the mix, what you get next as you come out of inflation is recession. And the worse the inflation The heavier the clampdown is, the more painful the recession often tends to be. And at least for now, the White House is, I guess, going with the let's uh, change the traditional rule of thumb definition so it wouldn't technically be the thing. But you're right. I mean, they can spin it just like they said inflation was transitory, right? They have these games that they try to play. They don't really work. Although, Britt, I do have to tell you, I have good news. And this just came across literally – not five minutes ago, from Pat Ward, one of our colleagues here at Fox, a producer. I guess Peter Ducey was able to get a question into Biden about the possibility of recession. And our president said, quote, we're not going to be in a recession, in my view. Well, I'm relieved, Britt. Are you? <laughs> Which I could say I was. <laughs> Look, we can certainly hope that that this, this quarter will turn out to be, you know, flat or, or a little bit of growth. That would be good. We all yeah, it might hope be. for that. You know, hope for that. But the thing in, in this current circumstance, what makes it so sort of dangerous politically and economically is that we're in the presence of this of this such strong inflation. And it has shot up so quickly. Um, and, you know, it's felt in the, the trouble. The trouble with inflation from a political standpoint is that everybody, literally everybody feels it. Um, even people who can well afford to pay the higher prices notice them and don't like them. So that is issue one. And if we get recession on top of that, 
Um, people, you know, what people are earning now is being depleted by inflation. If people start losing their jobs, which inevitably will happen in a recession, uh, we could have a we could have a political circumstance going into the 2024 presidential cycle as negative for the incumbent president's party as any I've seen in a very long time. Brett, on the issue of immigration, in the last hour we played a clip just from last week of the DHS secretary. He was in Aspen having a beautiful time with beautiful places, uh, beautiful faces in a beautiful place, Aspen, Colorado. And he was asked or was uh, it was raised, brought to his attention the issue of the border crisis. And he said, I think we have the clip, Dan, if we can just play. This is Mayorkas last week. The border is secure. The border, um, we are working to make the border more secure. That has been a historic challenge. The border is secure. And they've been saying this. This is the official White House line since day one. Bill Malugin, who is covering the border as closely as anyone in the country, his DHS sources, and we mentioned this last hour as well, now say there have been more than half a million known gotaways since October 1st. And last fiscal year, that number of known gotaways was close to 400,000. They've already blown past that. Since October, more than half a million. And just a couple months of this from now, if this continues even close to this clip, they'll be at a million, a million known gotaways under President Biden. And these people go on television, go under oath, go to speaking engagements and just breezily say that the border is secure. I mean, maybe it's the same answer or a similar answer, Britt, to their spin on the economic data. But it just is so divorced from the reality that people are seeing on the ground, especially if they're down in a you know border community, I can't imagine that the talking points really make much of an impact when people just attach very little credibility to them for good reason. It's like saying, who do you believe, me or your lying eyes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's palpably true that the border obviously is not secure, which is why we have not only the streams of immigrants that are coming through that you know we, whose presence we know about, but also those who've disappeared without ever being apprehended in the first place. They haven't been processed. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they've gone. We don't know anything about them. And boy, that is the definition of border insecurity, if there ever was one. So it's a, it's it's a little bit surprising to me that it does not seem to be as potent an issue um, with the with the broader public than I imagined it might be. But for certainly in those border states. It's a big deal, and it's as the numbers we're seeing with uh, Hispanic voters and others in those states are showing us, it's uh, it's causing a real headache for the Democrats. Yeah, I think the Republicans need to prosecute the issue. If they want it to be a bigger deal, they need to focus on it. I think that also applies to education. Glenn Youngkin, and we talked with this, uh, talked about this rather with Corey DeAngelis last week. Glenn Youngkin made education a front and center issue in Virginia, and it made uh, it was really a winning issue for him. I think Republicans can't just sit back and say, sort of pointing over here, look at this bad economy, uh, vote for us. That might win. That might be sufficient to get them a majority. Uh, but I think if they want to maximize their chances to win bigger, they have to take the fight to the Democrats on issues like the border on issues like education and not just kind of let the dreadful environment do its thing, which, again, might be sufficient to some level, but they could leave the example I keep using the sports analogy is leaving points on the field. 
Uh, Britt, I do want to ask you, because you have mentioned him multiple times on this show through the years, and we've had many conversations about COVID and the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci has indicated that he will be retiring at some point during the Biden administration. Um, I don't know if we have an exact timeline on that, but I just wonder if you had a thought or a comment on the at, at least somewhat impending retirement of Dr. Fauci. Well, I think what he said, Guy, and I'm sure you know this, is that he's probably not going to retire from being active, but he's going to retire from his current position. Right. Um, that's, that, that's good enough for me. Um, because I think he's, you know, I think he's been a he's been a problem. Uh, he's been a problem because um, he's he was far too uh, uh, definite and certain in his early claims. Uh, first of all, about how serious the uh, pandemic was going to be, and then uh, even more importantly, I think in his certainty about the about the uh, uh, efficacy of the vaccine. He was very much in favor of lockdowns. He was very much in favor of school closures. Um, he usually, when he spoke about these things, would leave himself a kind of a back door um, so that he couldn't be pinned down exactly. But there's no doubt where he was coming from. He was encouraging yep. all of this. It has turned out, as you may have heard, you've heard me say in the past, to be the worst public policy decision of my years as a journalist. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been a lot in these last couple of years. Britt Hume, thank you, sir. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Here's a headline from FoxNews.com. Biden judicial nominee on board of prison abolitionist group. Biden has nominated Rupali Desai to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The story says this. One of President Biden's latest judicial nominees serves on the board of a group that backed calls to defund the police and has called to abolish prisons. Biden wants to put this person on the federal bench for life. He nominated Rupali Desai, a litigation partner at the firm Cooper Smith Brockelman, to the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court bench last month. Desai serves on the board of Just Communities Arizona, a self-described abolitionist organization that envisions a world in which prisons and jails are unnecessary. Oh, okay, yes, just unnecessary. Jails and prisons, don't need those. The organization has taken several radical stances on the criminal justice system, including claiming that the criminal punishment system isn't really about justice and also mourning Arizona's execution of Frank Atwood last month. Who is Frank Atwood? He was convicted in 1987 of raping and murdering an eight-year-old girl and disposing of her body in the desert. And they put out a big tribute to him after he was put to death. This group was formerly known as the Arizona chapter of the American Friends Service Committee. And its national arm supports defunding the police and called the American criminal justice system, quote, a racist system that disproportionately targets people of color. And the Arizona branch that she serves on the board of co-signed a statement from the national arm that called to divert resources, quote, away from the police forces that occupy our communities. AFSC has also supported abolishing prisons, as well as the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement targeting Israel. Backed by several terrorist organizations, it is an anti-Semitic movement. So these are some real extremists. 
And they, of course, being left-wingers, are checking all the boxes of intersectionality where they support all the various causes. It's not just defund the police. It's abolish prisons. It's boycott, divest, sanction Israel. It's all of it. Racist systems, on and on it goes. And look, it's fine if you're out there and you're a leftist and you believe in these causes, fine. Freedom to associate, freedom of speech. We have the freedom to criticize and to disagree, and we will, and we should. But here's a woman. It's not like she once liked a tweet by this organization or got signed up to be a follower of the Facebook page of this organization and someone unearthed that. People get canceled for all sorts of things these days. Now, she is on the board of this organization, and you don't accidentally end up on the board of an organization. And you likely don't join in that capacity if you aren't on board with their general thrust of what they believe. I guarantee you it was not a mystery or a surprise to this nominee that the group was in favor of defunding the police and abolishing prisons and all the rest of it. BDS, the list goes on. I see here that there are also fanatical abortion people. I mean, of course, it's just all of it's all of the things. And now Biden, Mr. Moderate, wants to take this woman who has spent her entire adult life and professional career apparently being not just a progressive or a liberal, but a champion of radical left wing ideology. Like part of the hardcore professional left at the fringe of society. And he wants to put her not just on the bench, but on a circuit court of appeals. And I'm sure criticizing her and going through her beliefs and highlighting the agenda of this group on whose board she sits, I'm sure all of that will be dismissed as racist and sexist against a woman of color who's breaking through glass ceilings and so on and so forth, because it's identity focused as usual on the left. But this is someone who is quite extreme, who should not be anywhere near the federal bench. And yet, because the Democrats in the Senate control 51 votes, when you include the tiebreaker of the vice president, they have basically rubber stamped everything that Biden has wanted on this front. Manchin and a few others will stand up on certain issues and good for them. Not going to criticize Joe Manchin all that much. But when it comes to judges, he has been lockstep with Schumer and with Biden. They all have been. So we'll see if this is a bridge too far for them. But there is a decent chance that this person gets confirmed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals because the Republicans lost the Senate due to getting swept in Georgia because a bunch of Republicans decided to stay home rather than show up and vote in January of last year. This is why Senate races matter so much and why Republicans would be doing a grave disservice to themselves and to the country if they don't get their act together and win a number of totally eminently winnable seats in the U.S. Senate this November. It seems like the House is almost certainly gone. The Senate is a question mark. But as the Democrats learned, for example, after 2018, even if you win something of a wave election and you've got the House of Representatives, you can stop a lot of things that the other side wants to do. You cannot necessarily stop judges. 
which is how Trump and McConnell kept putting a bunch of qualified conservatives on federal benches all across the country, culminating toward the end of the term with Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. That was a big deal. If Republicans can net at least one Senate seat this cycle, which they should be able to do on paper in theory, this type of nominee would not see the light of day in a Mitch McConnell-run Senate. I'm not saying they should blockade anyone that Biden puts up, but I think Biden and his team would have to think differently about the types of people that they tried to nominate and get through because the environment would be different. So long as Schumer is running the show up there, this is the type of person you're going to get. So I want to highlight the radicalism, not only of the nominee, but the people who decided to recommend her, the president who campaigned as a moderate, who is anything but the left wing of his party is running the show. He governs in fear of them, and that's never going to change. At this point, the die is cast. And then it's also another call to arms because elections have consequences. The 2020 election had consequences. The runoff election in Georgia had consequences. And now there's a chance in November to bring this type of thing to a screeching halt. If Republicans win not only the lower house, but the upper house as well in Congress. The stakes are very high. It's not just academic. It's not just theoretical. It's not just tribal. Party one versus party two. It matters. And I think this story encapsulates it and underscores that point. So I want to bring it to you. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past halftime here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is always on demand and free of charge every day. With us now is Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel, author of the book COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science. You can follow him on Twitter at D-R-M-A-R-C-S-I-E-G-E-L at Dr. Mark Siegel. And doctor, good to have you back. Great to be on with you, Guy. Great to be on with you. I want to start with monkeypox, WHO declaring a global health emergency on that outbreak. It seemed like there was a vote within the WHO not to declare it a global health emergency, but the leader of the group overruled it or something. Do you think it is truly a global health emergency, number one? And number two, since the vast majority of cases are coming among gay and bisexual men within a certain age range in particular. Is this something where the messaging, the treatment, the vaccines ought to be focused on that population as opposed to sort of treated as a broader health emergency for the population writ large? Really, really well positioned what you just said. First of all, I don't actually pay much attention to what the WHO calls an international a global health emergency, because if you would consider that they called bird flu that back in 2005, I wrote a book about this, and, 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 and like 100 people end up dying from this, and they said hundreds of millions could die. Then the COVID pandemic, they, they did not call it a global health emergency. They said it was a regional problem only in January of 2020 because of their relationship with China 
most likely. And of course, we're here. We are two and a half years later, and you see where we are with this. So now they're, they're so I, I think they've lost their radar on what it's an actually international emergency. The second part of your question is more important, though, which is in my discussions with top level people at CDC, including Dr. Walensky, I'm convinced that it is still primarily in the population of men who have sex with men, and that it there's there is some spillover into the community at large. There's definitely more cases than we know about, Guy, because they were slow to diagnose it at the beginning. They, they, they had the same issue as with COVID, too rigid with testing, not enough available. Now they're up to about 70,000 tests a week with six manufacturers involved, and they have ponied up 780,000 doses of the Gyanox vaccine, which is from monkeypox. That's not enough. But, but certainly their, their public health awareness on this matter here, at least in the United States, is growing. So I don't have a problem with this announcement if it, if it ends up leading to more attention and more resources. And, you know, we certainly don't want another fiasco like with HIV where we didn't pay enough attention to it, in part because of political reasons, possibly not, you know, because it was in the gay community, very disturbing in, in the 80s. And then it spills out and becomes a, a larger issue in, in all communities. That may very well happen here. It will never be another pandemic, though, because the ability to catch it is it's much harder to spread this. It's also much less lethal, right, than HIV, certainly in AIDS. Uh, so it's it's something to be concerned about. I think that the messaging ought to be clear and focused and targeted. That's the thing, because a lot of people have just assumed, oh, monkeypox, it's the next thing, the next thing I should be concerned about. And I think maybe for some populations, that's true. In other populations, much less likely to be true. Yeah, that's that's extremely well said. And uh, and I think we have broken radar. The whole country It's like it's either an on or an off switch. And right. WHO doesn't help with that. I, I think we have to begin by targeting the communities with treatments. Now, look, such as vaccines. First of all, everyone that's had a smallpox vaccine, which anyone that's born between 19, before 1972 has, they've got some immunity residual from that. We're, we're not... Uh, we're not factoring that in. And then there's T-pox, which is a good antiviral treatment for this, that believe this or not, and you're, you of all people are used to bureaucratic snafus, believe it or not, to get that drug, you actually have to be entered into a protocol, a CDC protocol, like a clinical trial, because the FDA hasn't given it emergency use authorization for monkeypox, which is wrong and needs to change. That This is a very painful condition. You're right that five people in the world so far have died of this. This, is, this has been smoldering along for years. It's not here overnight. It was overlooked. But in most cases, it's not life-threatening, but it can be painful. Meanwhile, on COVID, I saw Nate Silver highlighted a poll that came from YouGov. And here's what he described as the upshot of the poll, doctor. Silver wrote, the more closely people follow COVID news, the more likely they are to think that the pandemic is going to get worse rather than believing that the worst part of the pandemic is already behind us. So the more you pay attention to COVID news, the more wrong you are wildly wrong you are on this question, because I think it is beyond doubt at this point that the worst element, the worst period of the COVID pandemic is behind us with the massive death tolls and all of that. I mean, you never know what could happen into the future, but at least for now and based on the trajectory, the worst is behind us. And yet the people paying closest attention have it backwards. 
to what do you attribute that? Is it just the people who are still fixated on COVID coverage are more likely to be just neurotic about it and therefore they have an outsized sense of the risk? What's going on here for the most quote unquote educated news consumers being the most incorrect, the least informed, at least on the overall arc of this thing? That's a very. I think it's it's mostly the politicization. I think if you're a politician, your tool is to warn and scare people. And so every time somebody comes on, on television who's a public health official or part of the administration, they they don't want to, or any administration, local in L.A. County for for that matter, they don't want to be accused of underreacting. But they're not factoring in the actual science here, which is a we have a variant, the Omicron variant, which has been well studied now and is predominantly upper respiratory not deep into the lungs. There's a historical precedent for that. That's what happened in the, in the 1918 flu. By the third wave, it was upper respiratory mo- mostly, and people stopped dying of it, and it started spreading more widely, and that led to immunity that exists till this day. And, and I think that that's where we've been heading with Omicron. We're getting wave after wave of subvariant, but blanketing Immunity, And if you have the vaccine, even though the vaccine is now out of date in a sense, if you have the vaccine and, you, you know, you've had prior COVID, you've got, you've got immunity. And then on top of that, we actually have an antiviral drug, which I didn't think we were going to get, which is quite good for high-risk groups. And that puts us in a totally different place than we were yeah. two and a half years ago. And that should be in every conversation about this. Yep. You don't have immunity from getting it. I mean, I have a friend who's on her third round of COVID. She's had three shots and three bouts of COVID, but you have some immunity in terms of fending off the disease and the likelihood of it being a fatal case just drops precipitously down to almost zero, especially if you aren't in a high risk group. And you mentioned the therapeutics that work, the treatments that work. Uh, We're in a completely different and much better place than we were. And it blows my mind that there are a lot of people who apparently believe the opposite, which is something that I really struggle to understand. Dr. Siegel, last question, different topic, and it seems quite important. I read this story at science.org. It is an investigative story that I am still struggling to really understand because there's a lot of technical language in it, but it seems like a massive scientific scandal is brewing around research and science involving Alzheimer's and that disease, which is a terrible disease. Uh, It's something that has affected my family, and I do therefore pay a little bit more attention to Alzheimer's news than maybe the average person does, but this is something that impacts many millions of Americans and their loved ones, of course. And it looks as though a lot of the sort of primary scientific assumptions around the disease are based on faulty, if not outright fraudulent data, and someone appears to have discovered this and blown the whistle, and there's this tempest brewing. How significant is this? Have I described it properly? What do we need to know about this? Unbelievable story, and and so thank you so much for bringing this up today. Uh, The drug in question is called simulophim. It's called simulphalim. Simulphalim, and it got approved uh, by FDA with a lot of eyebrows raised because it has a lot of side effects and hasn't been shown to work. Now, let me get d- deeper into what you're bringing up here. It was based on the research was based on imaging, which a scientist named Matthew Schrag 
says is is been tampered with the actual imaging, and that's the issue. So now let me tell you my thoughts. One, this this is all published in Science, as you said, and that journal is one of the top two in the in the world. That in nature, the top two in the world. This is a very reputable journal. This journal doesn't doesn't sensationalize. This is a real real issue. Secondly. Neuroimaging for Alzheimer's is becoming hugely important, and it should not be tampered with because it's actually one of the holy grails of figuring out how to handle Alzheimer's and when it's active and when it's progressing and and what to do about it. Hugely important not to massage anything to do with imaging. Third, and this is probably my most important point, the whole thing is based on a protein called beta amyloid. Now, we know that beta amyloid is characteristic of Alzheimer's. Here's what we don't know, Guy, whether it's there after the fact or before the fact. In other words, this drug, what it does is it leads to the breakdown of or the repair of that abnormal protein, but that may be too late. A lot of people believe that preventing the buildup of amyloid and tau proteins, those are the characteristic Alzheimer's proteins, are the future. Prevent the buildup. But once it's already there, repairing it or whatever, the damage looks like it's been done. The horse is already out of the barn. So if any kind of... Uh, of misrepresentation of the results here, of the study, of the drug, really problematic when you consider that millions and millions of people in the United States and around the world are, have, are glued to getting a treatment for this. It devastates entire families, as you know. Yeah, and I'm looking at some of the details and the research, the science that appears to have been tampered with or at least partially fabricated, that has been the basis for scores of articles scientific articles around Alzheimer's and treatment. And if that was wrong, if the initial findings were wrong, then a lot of the subsequent science based on it is useless. And you just wonder, have we squandered years and huge amounts of funds chasing down a lead that actually wasn't accurate? I mean, that seems like it would be a massive scandal, and it would be devastating to a lot of people who have put hope in some of these treatments I mean, what should we in the public just concerned people do about this or think about this? Because to me, it just the story itself seems outrageous and a little bit overwhelming. I don't even know what to what to think about it. Well, Guy, it's really disturbing. But let me let me soften it slightly by saying this. Most top aging scientists, scientists, experts on aging, not that they're aging themselves, know that it's preventing the buildup of, of, of beta amyloid and tau that matters the most. The hint in, in this article is that somehow beta amyloid may not be the issue. I still think it's the issue. But preventing its buildup is the, is the issue. Second, neuroimaging of the brain remains really important. What's really disturbing here, though, is is that it, this this ended up putting a lot of targeting and funding and, and, and research on, again, horses already being out of the barn, beta amyloid being already formed. That's a huge tragedy, and it's a huge scientific tragedy, and it's very well described in the article, and it sounds like the scientist at Vanderbilt is a hero for doing this. It's a real warning to people doing research not to get ahead of themselves and not and clear, clearly if this if these allegations are true this is a criminal yeah and the guy that you're talking about at Vanderbilt is the one who sort of sniffed around and felt like something was off and then went through the process of raising very serious questions about data that appears to be at least on some level fraudulent and if he hadn't done that and if people hadn't taken it seriously and responded who knows how much more time and money 
could have been wasted or misdirected in a way that was not actually helpful to getting a solution to this problem that affects so many people. And Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for addressing it with us here on the show. Thank you so much. We will step aside. We will be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, there was a viral video that made the rounds over the weekend from the University of Michigan where a group of medical students walked out on a speaker who was giving the keynote address at their white coat ceremony. These were incoming medical students at U of M. And the speaker is a professor at the school, a very distinguished doctor, a woman named Dr. Kristen Collier, who's an assistant professor of medicine at that institution. And she was going to address the students, these new students at the medical school, They, some of them, had been petitioning to have her removed as the speaker. They didn't want to hear from her at all. They felt like she should not be allowed to give the keynote address. Why? Because she is pro-life. And she has said pro-life things in the past. And so, obviously, if someone has said something that you disagree with, then, boy, that person ought to be driven out of polite society and certainly not allowed to go to a lectern and say words that you might have to hear. Now, the speech wasn't about abortion at all. The speech was about advice to incoming medical students. Apparently, the reviews were that it was a good, nonpartisan, non-ideological speech. But a group of these activist students, and we've talked about the wokeification of law schools, the wokeification of medical schools. These kids, these students, tried to get her thrown out of that role. They failed. So credit goes to the University of Michigan for not bowing to the mob in this case. So then dozens of them, once she began speaking, stood up and walked out of the room. Now, most people stayed. It looked like most of the students stayed put and the audience stayed put, and she was given a polite welcome and people applauded and that sort of thing. But there were some would-be doctors so committed to abortion that they did not want to have to sit and even listen to unrelated advice from someone who has expressed an opposition to abortion in the past, which is so incredibly close-minded and juvenile in my view. And, of course, because Twitter is a left-wing cauldron echo chamber, a bunch of people were cheering on the students like they were so brave. It's not brave at all. Doing the latest virtue-signaling left-wing thing is not brave at all. And a shocking number of people, maybe not so shocking, felt like the University of Michigan disgraced itself by permitting a pro-life person to speak in this capacity. I guess they love women, they want women to be doctors and, you know, girl power and strong, accomplished women, unless you don't believe exactly the right things, in which case, get out. It is so close-minded. And the tribalism and the polarization is just toxic. One other related note out of the University of Michigan, their football coach, Jim Harbaugh, I'm not a fan. I'll just say that. But he was quoted recently talking about his pro-life beliefs. He said, quote, I believe in having the courage to let the unborn be born. I love life. I believe in having a loving care and respect for life and death. My faith and science are what drives those beliefs in me, end quote. And there's a bunch of people mad at him now. And I will say maybe I'm 
less of a critic of Jim Harbaugh now because I agree with him on that, although on the gridiron, my position is unchanged. Are they going to throw him out because he's pro-life? Are they going to try? Are those the standards these days? So far, the university standing up to these people, but we'll see. The pressure gets immense, and these bubbles become pressure cookers. My hat is off to the woman who gave the address and to the adults who stayed put and listened to another human being. It's a low bar for applause, but I guess they deserve it in this current climate. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Howie Kurtz is here next. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of the program today. Thank you for being here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, the final hour, 5 to 6, is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. Got the new shipment, I think, on the way to the house. Any day now should be arriving. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it is sold near you. That list has been expanding rapidly due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. In fact, I had a long drink at Katie Pavlich's house this weekend. I was over there for dinner. She and her husband are fans. So just putting that out there. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is free every day. Lots of other content there. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. I'll see you a little over an hour and a half from now on Fox News Channel. I'll be on special report with Brett Baer as part of his panel, so hope you'll tune in for that. Joining me now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz, every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. Also, he is host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's always good to have you here on the show. Same here, guys. I want to ask you about your overall thoughts on the press coverage of President Biden's COVID diagnosis. Obviously, the circumstances are vastly different. It seems like the president's condition is quite different than the former president's was at the time. But Joe Biden is 79 years old. Sounds like it's mild. and He's improving. Thank goodness. And overall, the tone from the press has been more matter of fact, less breathless. Probably less hysteria and also some cheap shots at Donald Trump for by people on the air and elsewhere who didn't make the distinctions that you just did. I mean, at the time, I mean, Jim Messina, former Obama uh, White House aide who's now on MSNBC a lot, went on and said, well, this is so different than Trump because Trump didn't even want to take the vaccines and lied about it and blah, blah, blah. There were no vaccines available even to a president when Donald Trump got COVID. And yes, he had to go to the hospital. And yes, he needed oxygen. And yes, there were conflicting accounts because initially his condition was portrayed as not being as serious as it was. So to compare that to now when it is utterly routine for somebody who, as the president is, fully vaccinated, fully boosted, to get this, to have very mild symptoms. In fact, there's a report that he's, all the symptoms are almost gone today, several days after he got it, uh, is very different. At the same time, I would just throw this in. 
it is the approach of the Biden White House to say, nothing to see here, no big deal, president has COVID, yes, he's 79, but he's fine. Uh, and that seems to be reflected in a lot of the coverage. Now, it, it may have the additional virtue of being true, but I think yeah. there's a little bit too much eagerness to go along with that line. Well, I think there's often eagerness to go along with the line of Democrats in general. I mean, this is what the media does all the time. We've seen the Gallup numbers with trust in the media crashing, Howie, among conservatives even further, but also among liberals and Democrats. It seems like the trust factor is so far eroded that I'm not sure what it would take to build back some of this ground, gain back some of the ground that's lost. But it doesn't seem like many in the media are terribly interested in course correcting at all. And I wonder what you make of I mean, look, I, we all understand why conservatives broadly distrust the media. I think that that is uh, righteous uh, lack of trust and the media has earned that. But I also feel like these days there's this increasing belief on the left that the media is also terribly biased against them. And in fact, there was a Washington Post column that we talked about last week. One of their columnists said that the media's fault in the last couple of years has been far too unfair, far too negative against Joe Biden. And he explicitly called for more positive coverage of the Biden administration because he said it's just been uh, just unjust and it's been this media hysteria. To me, that is wildly out of touch with reality. And yet it's a view that has quite a lot of currency in relatively broad swaths of the center left in this country. Yeah, that argument is a crock. People who who wish Biden was doing better. But I will go back to your earlier point about um, is Biden being treated fairly or unfairly? Look, for the first six months, uh, you know, there were all the comparisons to FDR and so forth, and he was doing reasonably well, and he got good press, as we all expected would be the case. Uh, And then came Afghanistan. And he got really, really and well-deserved rough coverage for the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And since then, almost nothing has gone right uh, for this president. You can debate how much of it is just problems he inherited versus self-inflicted wounds. But everything from inflation, which uh, you know, remains a huge problem, which president's gotten gas prices down a little bit, but not by that much. You can talk about the border. You can talk about the baby form of the shortage. He always seems to be um, threatening to do something. I'm going to sign a new executive order, and he doesn't do it, or he doesn't have support from his own party to do it. And then you have all of these polls, I mean, way down in the polls, I mean, to an alarming degree. And all these Democrats who don't want him to run again, he'd be 82 at the inauguration. So it is true. He's getting a lot of rough coverage. It tends to be more sort of political horse race coverage. But some have come out and said, you know, he's just not very good at managing the government. And so that's the reason that some on the left, when their guy is in the White House, and they're saying, oh, these media people, God, they can't stand them. They're really unfair. All right. I mean, they want just nonstop propaganda, which is what they often get during the campaigns, because so many journalists are rooting for the Democrats and voting for the Democrats. But when you're covering a presidency and it's this bad and it's just been the drumbeat of negativity where the outcomes are terrible, it's not like they're inventing this stuff and out of thin air, just, you know, uh, conjuring up bad news for the sake of controversy or for the sake of, you know, negativity or something. That's not the case. And you just listed off a number of the things that people are experiencing every day. And yet, Howie, I still feel like this is nowhere near the level of hostility that the previous administration faced every single day over the course of four years, plus the entire general election campaign of 2016 as well. I mean, it's been it's been rough out there, some rough sledding for Joe Biden and still 
paling in comparison to the treatment Trump got. Right, because the bottom line is it's less personal in Biden's case. Uh, nobody is saying, God, oh, Biden is a horrible human being, he's a fascist, he's, you know, he's caving in. They're just saying he's not doing a very good job, and he is, uh, his chances of getting reelected look increasingly small. His chances of even getting the nomination are open to question. It's a train wreck, and you can't look away. Even if they wanted to protect Biden, they couldn't. It would be media malpractice. In the case of Donald Trump, well, there certainly were lots of policy differences, and I could rattle off you know, 25 examples. I mean, most, of, most journalists, and not just talking about opinion people, couldn't stand Trump and you know, made a decision at various points, either during his presidency or after the election that Trump and so and so has stolen, or after January 6th, that this was a horrible human being, a bad guy. And so the coverage was infused with hostility. The hostility went both ways. Trump is still attacking individual journalists. For sure. That's his thing. Biden doesn't do that. On that front, we talked about this here on the show just a little bit last week with Martha McCallum. But there has been a sea change, a pivot within the news media and also the late night comedy shows, which is very much that whole genre, except for Gutfeld is kind of left-wing Democratic talking points and social issues and and cultural enforcement all the time. They do a lot of that on those shows. And they've been kind of getting tougher on Biden, more willing to ridicule him, more willing to, you know, take him down a couple pegs. We also saw from the news media side of things very negative coverage of the Saudi Arabia trip. I think, again, on the merits, it's hard to argue against that. It was a bad trip that didn't really go well for him. But it does kind of just feel out there, Howie, like more people who might be inclined to defend or protect Biden are kind of giving up on that. And I wonder, is it because they've come to the conclusion that the outcomes are so bad that it's not worth it? Or have they gotten a signal from their team, from their tribe? Okay, we're all over Biden now. He's old news. We can do whatever we want to give him whatever treatment we want, because collectively, at least in our minds, we're kind of moving on. That's at least how it seems to me. The latter. Yeah, there was a bad there was a bad signal over Gotham City saying this, this is the time to <laughs> right. go. Look, um, I had uh, White House spokesman John Kirby on Media Buzz yesterday, and I asked him about the Saudi Arabia trip, and I said, "You got nothing like you no no decrease in oil production, fist bump controversy." And he said, oh, no, no, we had all these great things. And he just listed diplomatic things that had nothing to do with energy production. Uh, so he didn't, I didn't think he had a strong case to make. Um, I just think that even with the late-night comics, I've looked at a montage of those clips when I was on another Fox show. Um, sure, they're now, for the first time, taking jabs at Biden because, you know, it's, it's, it's low-hanging food. But it's pretty mild stuff. It's almost the equivalent of, you know— uh, Bill Clinton loves to jog and then go into McDonald's, you know, not really slashing at him in the way that Alec Baldwin did with Donald Trump. But the, as a barometer, as a canary in the coal mine, if even the late night shows are at least now uh, willing to take him on. Remember when Saturday Night Live, after the, the, the inauguration, named its new Biden impersonator, and then you never saw the guy like for weeks. It was like his, his face was on milk carton. But now I think uh, it's changed, at least in terms of tone. Yeah, SNL would do Fox News sketches and Trump sketches all the time after Trump was gone because I guess they felt like there wasn't anything funny enough about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, even though it's been a comedy of errors over at the White House. They had the Praetorian Guard protecting them, and it seems like at least the defenses are coming down a little bit. And I think some of that stems from a sense that, okay, we're sort of bored with this. We're sort of done with him. What's the next thing for us to get all excited about? Uh, We'll see if that continues Howie, last question here. 
I saw this tweet, and I engaged with the tweet not seeing who had sent it. But I guess there was a meeting of school superintendents on academic recovery, and one person on a panel at this conference was talking about the priorities of educators, and this person said that academic achievement isn't keeping educators up at night. Low test scores are not going to kill a child. A bullet will. So this was a gun control argument, obviously, and I guess it got a bunch of applause and all of that, and I think it's just an incredibly damning admission that they're treating academic achievement and low test scores as an afterthought and an education conference. They're just telling on themselves. And so I was commenting on that, and then I saw our friend Carol Markowitz commenting on the exact same tweet. The tweet was sent by someone named Erica Green, and I hadn't even looked to see who that was. I was, again, looking at the content of what was being said on this panel about education, and this is the way Erica Green framed it. This panel on academic recovery is fire, and she had the fire emoji. The latest mic drop moment is from Dan Dominich, and then she offers these quotes that I think are very revealing and sort of a billboard again for school choice. But it was framed as like cheerleading, like this is an amazing thing that he said, this insane point about school shootings being really the priority of educators and kids falling behind and their academic development and test scores sort of matters a lot less. Uh, The fire emoji, the mic drop, all of that framing came from, as I said, Erica Green. Then you click on her bio. She is an education reporter for The New York Times. She is a journalist assigned to cover issues of education, and she is just breaking out the blue pom-poms to not just amplify but cheer on a point that I think, A, is terrible, and B, in a way where I just assumed this was an activist. I didn't know this was a journalist, and indeed it's a New York Times journalist on the education beat. And Howie, I mentioned it earlier, the polling numbers about trust in media completely collapsing even further – When even someone who sort of lives in this sphere and operates in it all the time, when I cannot tell the difference between an activist tweet and a journalist tweet, that seems to be a problem. It's amazing. And by the way, I'm concerned about school shootings, too. But low test scores and who cares? And, you know, what is the point of education otherwise? It is amazing how many journalists have gotten into trouble, not that you would get into trouble with the bulk newsroom of the New York Times, uh, because they go on Twitter and they think they're just talking to their friends, you know, yes. and they vent and they and they, they seem very, very political. I mean, this is it's, it'd be something to be reported in a neutral tone like, hey, on the other hand, you know, to embrace it, I think tells you where we are, the, the line between reporting and opinion and activism is just dissolving. And you're right, in this instance, not knowing who it was, you would think it would be some wild-eyed activist, but no. Well, I did. That's what I thought. I assumed I didn't even bother to check who had tweeted it until Carol Markowitz highlighted it. Mm. I was like, holy cow, because I think the point that was made on the panel was appalling. I think massively overstating the risk of school shootings, although obviously it's a horrible thing. And I supported the bill, for example, that just got passed and signed into law. I think to say that, oh, that's what keeps us up at night, but oh, well, you know, falling test scores and academic progress inhibited, that's sort of like an afterthought. That is a terrible point for an educator to make. And you had this person saying, oh, fire emoji, mic drop, and it's a journalist assigned to the issue of education policy at the paper of record. I mean, it is, it is just 
just the mask is off for so many of these folks. And how it seems like they don't care. They just don't care if they are identified as a left wing activist. They feel like that's part of the job, I guess. And if someone doesn't like it, then they're probably some knuckle dragging right winger. And if their approval ratings, the media generally is, you know, in the toilet. Oh, well, it's the great unwashed having a tantrum. We're not going to change. And I just think it's so destructive overall to their credibility, and they seem to be perfectly comfortable with that. Well, they don't care unless their bosses care. And increasingly, some bosses do, and others are like, let the news do what it wants, because we'll just have another woke controversy. So uh, I will watch that with great interest, Guy. Yeah, the, the bosses are afraid of the journalists. They're afraid of the newsroom. They're afraid of the inmates in the asylum. And so this is what you get. And I am afraid it will get worse before it gets better, if it ever gets better. And on that very cheerful note, Howie Kurtz, we've got to run. Fox News Channel's Media Buzz host every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Catch his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at foxnewspodcast.com. Plus other notes, at Howard Kurtz on Twitter. Howie, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Many thanks. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. There's a big matter in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got weight on your shoulders and you think the only way you can solve this by killing yourself, please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. People would rather. I know I'd rather me make cry on my shoulder than go to his funeral next week. So please, let's get rid of this stigma and men start talking. Back on the Guy Benson show, I'm not usually someone who watches UFC, but I saw this clip that was going everywhere. The voice you heard was a UFC fighter who goes by Patty the Batty, and he had just won a match, and he used the post-fight interview to make a point about a friend of his who had just killed himself, had just committed suicide, And he was clearly very emotional over that and made this plea for men in particular to seek help and to ask for help and to talk about feelings. And he got a big cheer from the crowd. I thought that was really important for him to do. I commend him for that. It was personal, but it's something that needs to be heard by a lot of people. So I'm glad that he said it. And I want to take the opportunity here to note, if you haven't heard already, that Americans can now call simply 988 That's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. If you're in a mental health crisis, if you're having suicidal thoughts, there used to be a long number to call. Now it's simplified. 988. You can call someone and get some help. And there shouldn't be a stigma around that because we'd rather have you here than for you to suffer in silence and then take your own life. 988 if you're in trouble. And I'm very glad that that fighter said what he said. We need more of that. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for being here. Earlier in the program, we caught up with Britt Hume, our colleague, senior political analyst here at Fox News. Much to discuss on the news of the day, the political scene. Here's part of my conversation with the great Britt Hume. I would like to get your take on the redefinition of recession that we're starting to hear from the White House, the Treasury Secretary, a top economic advisor, WhiteHouse.gov. They're all saying, well, if we get a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, that would not 
technically be the definition of a recession, so we probably shouldn't call it that. Uh, what do you make of that, Brett? For long as I can remember, Guy, going back many decades, the standard definition of a recession has been consecutive quarters of negative growth. So we've had one such quarter. We may have another. Um, and the White House doesn't like that definition apparently now and decides that it wants to use some other definition. Well, I scouted around a little today, Guy, to see what other definitions might be available. Well, here's one from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, a period of reduced economic activity. I can't believe they would like that one better. But yeah. the, you know, when you get down to it, when you're, when you're in a recession, politically, it's, you don't like the word. But what really matters is what people are feeling and experiencing in their own lives. And you know, people are having a hard time, and it, it's more inflation than the possibility of recession. But both are in the cards, and it's not good, and there's no way to spin your way out of it. Yeah, and once you try to get rid of the inflation, which is crushing people, that is what so often leads to recession. And we played the clips from Larry Summers and others saying when you have the exact current set of issues and circumstances that we're all living through right now with inflation and low unemployment, when that is you know in the mix, what you get next as you come out of inflation is recession. And the worse the inflation the heavier the clampdown is, the more painful the recession often tends to be. And at least for now, the White House is, I guess, going with the let's uh, change the traditional rule of thumb definition so it wouldn't technically be the thing. But you're right. I mean, they can spin it just like they said inflation was transitory, right? They have these games that they try to play. They don't really work. Although, Britt, I do have to tell you, I have good news. And this just came across literally – not five minutes ago from Pat Ward, one of our colleagues here at Fox, a producer. I guess Peter Ducey was able to get a question into Biden about the possibility of recession. And our president said, quote, we're not going to be in a recession, in my view. Well, I'm relieved, Brett. Are you? <laughs> Which I can say I was. <laughs> Look, we can certainly hope that that this this quarter will turn out to be, you know, flat or, or a little bit of growth. That would be good. We all yeah, it might hope be. for that. You know, hope for that. But the thing in, in this current circumstance, what makes it so sort of dangerous politically and economically is that we're in the presence of this of this such strong inflation. And it has shot up so quickly. Um, and, you know, it's felt in the, the trouble. The trouble with inflation from a political standpoint is that everybody, literally everybody feels it. Um, even people who can well afford to pay the higher prices notice them and don't like them. So that is issue one, and if we get recession on top of that, um, people, you know, what people are earning now is being depleted by inflation. If people start losing their jobs, which inevitably will happen in a recession, uh, we could have a we could have a political circumstance going into the 2024 presidential cycle as negative for the incumbent president's party as any I've seen in a very long time. Britt, on the issue of immigration, in the last hour, we played a clip just from last week of the DHS secretary. He was in Aspen having a beautiful time with beautiful places, uh, beautiful faces in a beautiful place, Aspen, Colorado. And he was asked or was uh, it was raised, brought to his attention the issue of the border crisis. And he said, I think we have the clip, Dan, if we can just play. This is Mayorkas last week. The border is secure. The border um, we are working to make the border more secure. That has been a historic challenge. 
the border is secure. And they've been saying this. This is the official White House line since day one. Bill Malugin, who is covering the border as closely as anyone in the country, his DHS sources, and we mentioned this last hour as well, now say there have been more than half a million known gotaways since October 1st. And last fiscal year, that number of known gotaways was close to 400,000. They've already blown past that since October, more than half a million. And just a couple months of this from now, if this continues even close to this clip, they'll be at a million, a million known gotaways under President Biden. And these people go on television, go under oath, go to speaking engagements and just breezily say that the border is secure. I mean, maybe it's the same answer or a similar answer, Britt, to their spin on the economic data. But it just is so divorced from the reality that people are seeing on the ground, especially if they're down in a you know border community. I can't imagine that the talking points really make much of an impact when people just attach very little credibility to them for good reason. It's like the, saying, who do you believe, me or your lying eyes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's palpably true that the border obviously is not secure. My full interview with Brett Hume available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, it's the entire show, every day, on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. we talked about tattoos on the show recently. Producer Christine might be getting one. In fact, maybe as we speak, there's a twist that involves branding that we will discuss right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website. Podcast free every day. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on with Brett Bayer, Molly Hemingway, and Juan Williams. I think we're on set tonight in the big studio here in D.C. Right around 645 Eastern. Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there. Heading up to New York after that, I'll be doing various TV shows and performing TV duties for the next couple of days. Of course, hosting this program from the world headquarters as well. We'll be doing all of it sans Christine. Producer Christine is on vacation this whole week. And if you recall, in a recent home stretch segment, which if you had missed it, you can go back to Bonus Benson and re-listen. But we were talking about tattoos. Christine had recently been asking and thinking about getting a tattoo. This was a topic that we broached with Cat Timp a few weeks ago. And Christine was seriously considering going and getting a tattoo, perhaps even on this vacation. So we'll see if she returns from vacation, inked or not. But since that issue was raised, I guess we have tattoos on the brain. And I think it was Wyatt who sent this story for potential discussion. Here's the headline from Fox Business. Subway, meaning the sandwich chain, Subway offering free sandwiches for life to first person who gets foot-long tattoo. Subway also offering prizes to eight other individuals who get smaller tattoos. Here are the details. Subway offering free sandwiches for life to one person who gets a foot-long tattoo on their torso during the sandwich shop's promotional event this week. Fans of the sandwich restaurant are invited to a block party on Wednesday in Las Vegas, 
were the first person to receive a 12-inch by 12-inch logo of its new Subway Series promotion on their sternum or back, will be rewarded free sandwiches for life, given as much as $50,000 worth of gift cards every year. Company also offering prizes to a handful of other individuals who get smaller tattoos of the promotional logo, a three inch by three inch tattoo imprinted on a person's shoulder blade or forearm or calf will get them free sandwiches for one year, awarded as $4,380 worth of gift cards. Free sandwiches for a year for a lifelong tattoo on your shoulder blade or calf. What a deal. Fans can also receive free sandwiches for a month if they get a two-inch by two-inch logo tattoo. So they're trying to, I guess, get some publicity out of this, and it's working because we're doing it right here. But during our conversation about this earlier, Dan, our engineer, confessed that he is, in fact, a fan of Subway. I will go to Subway very occasionally. I have one order that I tend to like, and I always get it because I – I'm not generally someone who frequents Subway, and I'm not going to criticize you, Dan. I just will say you live in the New York area, and you do have better sandwich options available to you. So I'm a little bit confused. What is it about Subway that you love so much, and would you consider getting a tattoo of any size if it meant free sandwiches? I don't know. I I grew up going to Subway. We always had it like all the time as like a fast food option instead of like a McDonald's or something like that. I don't get it all the time now, but when I do, I, I kind of save it for, like, a special, like, treat for myself kind of thing. But I just love getting to pick your own, like, any topping you want and mixing and matching and stuff like that. Um, I would not get the foot-long tattoo. That's a little aggressive. But 12 I would, by 12. Yeah. I, would, <laughs> I do have a lot of tattoos already, so adding to them, I probably would do, like, a three-inch three inch tattoo for this promotion. I would consider it. Of the it. Subway logo. Of the Subway logo. I would consider it. Huh. Okay. I mean, so we have someone on the staff willing to consider it, which means they are absolutely going to get people to do this. I think maybe they felt like they could get us to talk about it, but no one would actually get something this size, a monstrosity, on their body forever. But if Dan's willing to do it as a maybe within our pool of four people at the show, there's going to be someone, is there especially a, out in Vegas. Is there a caveat to it where you can get it covered up afterwards, you think? Or do you have to keep it forever? Uh, that I don't know. I have not read the fine print on this offer, believe it or not. <laughs> but I think the goal would be to get some of this advertising. I guess you could get it removed, which works to varying extents from what I understand. I'm just not a tattoo person myself. So it's all sort of like foreign to me. Wyatt, I would ask you if you would do this, but I think we all understand the answer to that question is no. However... You posed a very interesting question that's related to all of this. Setting aside Subway, setting aside this promotion and that logo, if you could pick a company and you would agree to get a tattoo of their logo on your body permanently in exchange for free product for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Do you have an answer to that or are you still saying no? Well, I, I this is tough because, I mean – there's two companies that come to mind. Of course, the Wall Street Journal. I would possibly get <laughs> a WSJ logo on my forehead if it meant I got a lifetime subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And then wow. 
<laughs> and then also, I, I actually would. I'm not a tattoo person. I, I, I don't think I really would ever do it. But if it meant that I can get free Rook coffee for the rest of my life, and their logo is pretty cool. It's a little bird and this circle thing. I would maybe do it. Not not a big one, but maybe just a small little uh, circle. I would I would maybe do that if I got free coffee for life. All right. So I was thinking about this, and my overall inclination and answer is no. I'm not getting a tattoo, period. However, if there was potentially a deal where I could get the product of the company forever, for free, for life, if I got the tattoo of their logo – I think you're thinking too small, Wyatt, because the Wall Street Journal, I mean, it's a newspaper. It's not that expensive. Coffee, not that expensive. I would go for a very expensive product. So I would maybe get like a NetJets tattoo so I could have private jets wherever I want to go forever or like a United Polaris tattoo for their first class. And I could fly wherever I want first class for the rest of my life or, you know, a major hotel chain like Four Seasons or I don't know, one of the other big chains where I could stay at resorts and hotels in any city that I wanted whenever I felt like it. I feel like that would be like a much bigger ticket item where it would be more worth it in terms of the cost-benefit analysis. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it needs to be something that is closer to the spirit of the Subway offer, which I think Wall Street Journal subscription and Rook Coffee, I I think, fits in that box. I'm talking about something several levels above that, but I think for good reason. And because you posed it in a very open-ended way, lifetime access to the product in exchange for a tattoo, I decided to go sky's the limit and go high-end travel was where my brain went almost immediately. See, I thought you would have gone Coke Zero. Free See, for that life. was my yes. My first thought was Coke Zero or even long drink, right? Uh, but those things, in the scheme of things, are inexpensive, right? I can get even at its most marked up ridiculous at an airport. I can get a twenty ounce bottle of Coke Zero for like four bucks, which is not cheap for carbonated beverage, but it's still four bucks. Getting a first class ticket round trip to Europe or something, or a private jet wherever I want to go, which means I could go on vacation and even take Roy. We could bring friends with us, no charge to us, unlimited. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So I'd be willing to eat it. I'd be willing to put down $4 for my Coke Zero to bring it aboard my, like, G6 or whatever to take me and... Adam and Roy and a couple friends to fill in the blank spot. Just don't tell Christine about this because she would insist as a best friend that she come along. So you'd have to keep that secret from her if I were to get this. I also think that NetJets would probably not agree to this whole setup because I don't think it's exactly what they're going for. It's not their vibe. And they know how expensive their product is. But because I get to set the terms in this hypothetical, that's the answer. I have one, one more option for you. If the Yankees said free mm. tickets for life, would mm. you get a big Yankees logo on you? Or just like a sports team, like one yeah. of my favorite sports teams where I could get season tickets for life. That is something I would consider. I still think the other options are more appealing and would be worth more. 
But people get sometimes tattoos of sports teams that they root for as a normal thing to do. So it would be a less bizarre tattoo to get than a corporate logo that has nothing to do with athletics and you know rooting for a franchise and loyalty and all of that. So that's not bad. That's one that I would at least think about. And it also depends, like, how big could it be concealed somewhere? Would I be able to pick my seats? How many tickets would I get? But, yeah, no, I would consider that. That would be at least something that I would give a hard look at. Not a bad option. Better than the other one that you mentioned, I think, just in terms of value. All right, you can think about yours. And as I said, Christine might be getting a tattoo literally right now as we speak because she was threatening to go get a tattoo on this vacation. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see because she'll be back on Monday. Maybe she'll have a whole, like, sleeve tattoo (laughs) down the side of her arm, just the full arm. I'm going to guess my bet is that she's not going to go forward with it. She's not going to go through with it, at least on this vacation. That's my guess, but that might be a stupid bet now that I'm saying it out loud. But we'll find out together a week from today. In the meantime, I've got to run. TV coming up, 645 Eastern, Fox News Channel. I'll be on the special report panel. Then back here on the radio from New York the rest of the week starting tomorrow. Same time as always, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern for The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.